Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discuss the Satanic Temple and a new film, learn about the FBI's attack on Nelson Elgren, and discover the truth about social media. All this, plus size matters, the Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet?, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for September 6, 2019. John Daly spoke with Jex Blackmore, an artist and former member of the Satanic Temple, about a new documentary, Hail Satan. Blackmore discussed the reality of the Satanic Temple, the free speech goals she is fighting for, and her upcoming Chicago exhibit, Sex Militant. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. In the studio right now is Ms. Jex Blackmore. Jex, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Jex, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with uh, her, is a Detroit-based artist, uh, speaker, provocateur, I, I think that's a way to put it. Uh, you have an art exhibit coming up here at the Co-Prosperity Sphere called Sex Militant, which will open on Friday. You also play a major part in a new film that's out called Hail Satan, which is a documentary of the Satanic Temple and their fight for uh, free speech and equal rights in the United States. Uh Again, welcome to Chicago. You just got in, so Thank thanks, you. thanks for coming here. So let, let's kind of start at the beginning. Um, John, first of all, has seen the film. He actually watched it today. I have, I have not seen it. But what is the film about? Because it, it has a question mark in the title, and that's kind of an ironic signal that this is a documentary that is not what people think it's about. Yeah, the documentary uh, is by a director named Penny Lane, and it kind of follows the uh, creation of the Satanic Temple a organization that's focused on satanic rights and um, and their multiple different um, uh, lawsuits and 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 endeavors as the organization grows over I think a four year period. And the, the satanic temple, though, as it's depicted in the film, as I understand it, is not exactly the way it's say depicted in Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, or uh, or other moments of popular culture. Can you tell us a little bit about what actually? For our listeners, the Satanic Temple actually is, as opposed to kind of, I guess, the uh, the prurient um, popular conception of it. Sure. I mean, I think that it's really a question of uh, what does contemporary Satanism mean in in, in um, a religious context, not necessarily even about the Satanic Temple specifically. Uh, you know, there most of our ideas about Satanism revolves around popular culture and. Uh, what we've learned from the satanic panic and uh, a lot of that revolves around um, you know the demonization of the other and kind of this fantasy of what evil means which is very much part a part of what the church promotes um, you, there is theistic satanists so those are satanists who believe in a in a literal devil and a supernatural being and then there's non-theistic satanists who who believe in the concept of the devil as a personal hero or a rebel as depicted uh, throughout history and in the Bible and literary texts, um, and it serves as a model for um, our behavior and beliefs, and that's kind of where the Satanic Temple falls into. But many other um, practicing Satanists who who maybe aren't a member of that organization um, see the devil as this kind of cultural hero and icon, uh, in in which we identify most um, strongly. I don't know if this is a, a universal reaction uh, when people watch this film, but um, for me. Uh, looking at people's reactions. They didn't really know what they were reacting to, it seemed like. Um, it was kind of sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that people are, I mean, if you grow up in a non-religious community or um, in a more progressive city, you think it's easy to forget how 
uh, how powerful the church and, and religious ideology today still is in society and in our culture. I mean, there's people who represent us in our government who would say that if you are a feminist or a, a gay person that you're going to help, and that's, that's happening today. And it's a pervasive narrative that, um, you know, sinful behaviors is a pathway towards evil, and it's something that um, millions of Americans believe today and has a, a real impact on policymaking, and, and especially under the Trump administration, the way that uh, they're really polarizing voters and, and to appeal to this kind of religious um, zealots that, that truly believe that um, sin and evil is, is, a, is a regular part of our lives and that sh we should be afraid of and fighting and instead of actually thinking of the true moral and ethical values that are promoted in our, in our state uh, and in governments um, on that face value, not on the religious um, value as defined by the church. So it doesn't seem like a very controversial concept to be promoting the separation of church and state in a country that was founded on this very central principle idea. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that it's so contentious because people want to believe that we have a, you know, there's a Christian nationism, this idea that keeps being promoted by specifically powers that benefit from that narrative. So big mega churches and, and the politicians that get donations from those kinds of religious leaders continue to promote the idea that we are a Christian nation when that's just simply not true. Well, we're, and one of the things that's interesting about this country is we've always had the idea that not only are you free to practice whatever religion you want, you also have the freedom from religion. And I think it's kind of interesting because what you're detailing is, is quite correct. There is actually not a freedom from religion when that gets caught up in state doctrine and state policy. And, of course, the, just the other day, um, I believe it was in Cincinnati, Ohio, a woman was forced to stand down after she made statements saying that the only people that should be elected were white Christians uh, to this position. Um, and, and you're right, this is unfortunately not uncommon. Is there, however, um, and I'm going to avoid using the words devil's advocate, which just flashed into my head, and I apologize for that, but is there a element, however, of using um, charge terms like the satanic temple or, or Satan worship, so to speak, that may get in the way of the message which the satanic temple seems to be sending, which is that we do need strict separation of church and state, and this is why, and our country was in fact founded on it. Yeah, I mean, there's a, many organizations that are working to, to preserve the separation of church and state. There's the ACLU, there's the Freedom from Religion Foundation, and many others. Uh, you know, I think that the criticism of Satan being such a polarizing term and therefore problematic or getting in the way of the message or idea is um, does a disservice to the fact that, number one, there are many of us who do self-identify as Satanists, and, and that is just a, a reality of what our beliefs are. And um, the idea that we should change the way that we identify or our ideals or our beliefs to benefit the superstitions or misunderstandings of, of most people, I think, is um, a disservice to society at large. If we can get people to think uh, more critically about the preconceived notions about people they don't understand, then I think that we would be um, a better, more equitable uh, society. And so uh, I'm a Satanist and I believe that we have the right to, um, you know, practice freely, but also um, oppose the imposition of Christian theocratic policy uh, in public spaces. And so as a Satanist, I'm going to fight for that and, and not change kind of the narrative about who I am so that other people can feel comfortable because their idea of who I am is, is based on kind of the fear mongering from the pulpit or, or horror films. I mean, that's what that was honestly what was sad for me because as someone who identifies as a Catholic, like there's nothing about what you just said that's threatening. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I, I didn't understand a lot of that. I mean, it, it just seemed like people really didn't care to really bother or listen to what you guys were saying. Yeah, I think that's part of the point is that when we use 
you know, the fact that like the idea of Satan is still something that's so pervasive and people are so fearful of, I think, is really important to realize in, in the context of the American landscape today. And uh, and kind of playing with that and and talking about it is uh, critical, I think, for us to move on and move past it. Uh, so it doesn't have power over us. But I think it's relevant in understanding that our, our political landscape is still very entrenched in this misunderstanding of, of other people who believe in other uh, other things than what we would normally uh, encounter in our in kind of normative, um, like social interactions and, and cultural interactions. Do you see the the satanic temple or or the the satanic religion, uh, so to say? Is it in the same place that other religions that kind of bubbled up um, in America in the past were in, where they were criticized and marginalized and demonized? Uh, I'm thinking specifically of the Mormon Church, which was, you know, chased out of cities. Um, do you think that the Satan can be in that same space in 20, 30, 50 years if that kind of discourse you're arguing for could be had? Well, I mean, I think that. It would be ideal if um, all all religion was eradicated from public space, to be honest. But I don't think that that's reality, uh, because religion in, in different forms have been a pervasive part of uh, human history since the formation of of um, uh, of groups of people living together. Uh, I do think that there is space in other, you know, in 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 more progressive countries. Uh, the idea of that Satanists are taken ser- taken seriously is actually something that's re- expressed as being quite absurd, uh, because it's more of a secular society. So I do hope that we move to a more secular space because I think that it creates uh, more equitable uh, decision making in society and also. Uh, in our politics, and so I do think that um, if we can if we can uh, shift the public narrative in a way that helps us to recontextualize the vir- our understanding of religion and and beliefs um, outside of the Judeo-Christian framework, then we can actually uh, create a more um, a society where yes, I think that we sa- you know satanic believers would be accepted on the same level as anyone else, um, and non-believers as well. And of course, there has been a, a tremendous upsurge in the last 20 years of so-called non-traditional religions. I mean, uh, pagan, Wicca, witchcraft, those those have found fertile roots in America and in other places across the globe. Uh, Scotland and Scandinavia and Germany come to mind. Um, is this something that's encouraging for you? I know that, you know, your your main thrust is that, you know, church and state shouldn't be mixed, but as somebody who does profess to have a religion and, and is a practicing member of that religion, does that encourage you for, you know, practice and, and your own freedom of beliefs? It does. I think, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that the separation of church and state is to be, is the ideal. But if we are going to continue to have a kind of a, a blurring of those boundaries, then I think that at the very least, a plurality of beliefs being represented in that same way is more beneficial than a singular set of beliefs. So, you know, uh, typically we see the lines blurred when it comes to Christian supremacy. And um, we see that time and time again when they talk about religious liberty laws, which seem to exclusively apply to people of the Christian faith and and, not, and nobody else's. And so I, I would argue that the, the more diverse beliefs that are accepted or or, or that demand to have access to the same space as these dominant faiths in our society, the better we are um, than if we're, if we're not able to actually create a, a secular uh, government.
Chuck Mertz spoke with author Richard Seymour about social media and social media consumption, just what is being consumed when we consume social media, and what effect is social media having on our society. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Social media is an addiction, and that's exactly its business model. It wants to consume our time and do it freely. It's also creating a revolution in writing that's comparable to the revolution caused by movable type. Here to take us on a tour of the Twittering machine, returning to This Is Hell, political writer and broadcaster Richard Seymour is author of the new book, The Twittering Machine. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Richard. Oh, thank you for having me. Richard has appeared on This Is Hell several times. His most recent appearance was back in February when we spoke with him about his article, Brexit and the White Working Class, which you can find on Richard's own Patreon page, patreon.com slash Richard Seymour WTF. You can follow Richard on Twitter at Leninology, and you can find out more about Richard at leninology.co.uk. You quote historian Melvin Kranzberg saying, technology is neither good nor bad nor new. Neutral. If all technology is either good nor uh, nor is neither good nor bad nor neutral, is it not say Twitter that is evil or Facebook that is evil? But us, do we blame technology for causing evils that are not the fault of technology, but are problems of our own? Uh, we can do. Um, that's uh, that's the moral panic style, isn't it? So. Uh, if we have problems in our society, um, we can say, well, there's this one factor that's responsible, and if we deal with it, um, then we'll be fine. That's a very reassuring uh, way to think about the world, um, and that's how moral panics tend to work. But um, one of the things we can say about technologies, or indeed about any aspect of a social uh, reality, is that um, does it does it magnify or potentiate the bad stuff? Does it um, take hold of uh, tendencies that are lamentable and make them worse? And that's the uh, cr critical question about the Twittering machine, about this new form of writing um, that we're all doing now. Because, I mean, if you think about it, uh, we're all writing more than we ever have before in human history. You know, I mean, uh, when in human history have people spent their time in toilet breaks writing? Uh, on their screens, on their phones? Um, when have they spent their time on tube bricks writing? You know, it used to be your practice of writing might involve, oh, I keep a diary or I, I write letters or something like that. It's now ceaseless. It's every day. It's nonstop. Uh, it's when you get up in the morning. It's, uh, for some people, it's during their parties, it's during uh, social meetings, according to some surveys, for some people during sex. I mean, this is, this is the thing that's taking over our lives now. So um, the critical question is, in what way, uh, what, what, what sort of future are we writing ourselves into? Now, as, uh, as I think you already know, um, the book sort of argues that we are more being written than we are writing. And that possibly sounds like a complicated argument, but it really isn't. We spend, on average, globally, about 135 minutes per day on various social media platforms, writing and so on. And that's quite a lot of time. And if you were to average that out over the average life, which uh, uh, in planetary terms is about 71 years, that's about 50,000 hours um, that uh, we're spending 
um, quite a lot of time, which could be devoted to any project. You could be doing anything. You could be learning to play a new instrument. You could be mastering a new trade, anything you like. Um, but instead, we're giving our time to this machine. Now, uh, time on this machine is very carefully written. Um, so, for example, um, if you um, uh, look at a computer screen, uh, if you look at the screen on your phone, you might see a, a folder, you might see an app, but you're not really seeing any, any of these things. These are just ideal visual representations of really complicated systems of writing, um, starting with the digital writing that creates computer code, uh, the software writing, the JavaScript, all of that stuff, layer upon layer of writing. And what we do, then do is we um, sort of add our own layer, um, but we're adding on the basis of very carefully and strictly written protocols and algorithms which shape how we can write to one another and how we can interact. And you know how it is if you go on Twitter, if you go on Facebook, there's certain preconditions, you know, on Twitter, 280 characters, um, there's certain types of content you can share, there's certain um, ways in which you can interact, you can like, you can retweet, uh, you can have a profile picture, you can have a, a, a self-description, etc. These are the um, protocols and they're set up along the lines of celebrity, along the lines of competition, along the lines of hierarchy, along the lines of status, and that if you think about the fact that we do spend roughly 135 minutes a day um, on these things, that's our social life now. You know, we spend more time interacting with one another on these various devices than we do face to face. So this is our social life that's being rewritten for us. We are literally being written into existence in a way. Um, and so we should pay close attention to how that's happening. because. In the whole history of writing, it's uh, been alphabetic or it's been print writing. Um, digital writing and its dominance is something entirely new. How much could that change the way that we write? You point out in your book about how we've left alphabetic writing behind by employing uh, emojis. How much is it possible that, say, in a century, uh, the English language for English readers might be indecipherable because of its new ways of using writing and images in its construction? Not necessarily. I, I mean, I, I, I certainly think it's possible, but that's not um, something that I think, I mean, certainly I wouldn't be overly concerned about it. Um, the thing about it is alphabetic writing, the, the, the virtue of it, um, I mean, it has its limitations, but the virtue of it is that it is phonetic. Um, it enables us to represent sounds, uh, speech sounds. Emojis and so on are um, uh, supplementary. They convey tonal information, register, things like that, um, that would, in a face-to-face -face conversation, be um, uh, immediately apparent on one's face or in the way one holds oneself, one's body language. So it conveys aspects of language that aren't strictly linguistic. They're paralinguistic. Um, so I'm not really worried about that so much. I'm more worried about um, the fact that um, it's going to change how we interact. It's going to change how we live um, in ways that we don't necessarily have any say over because this is the crucial thing. Any bit of written code, any program, any software, all that is is automated human purpose. Any algorithm, has somebody has come up with uh, what should be done 
what should be said, what should be thought about a particular subject, and they have tried to automate it with written code. And uh, obviously, the more layers of writing you get, uh, and the more elaborately structured it is, the harder it is to reverse. You can't just press delete. You know, it is hard written into our society. Now, all societies are predicated on a hierarchy of writing. You know, and pre previously in the old sort of traditional class societies, um, you might have the Bible or a religious text, or uh, in modern democratic societies, you might have a constitution, um, something like that at the top, the authoritative text. Well, obviously that still persists to some extent, and obviously we still have these um, big written infrastructures like education systems, um, mass media, and so on. But increasingly, um, these digital systems are changing the hierarchy. So um, one way in which you can measure that is if you think about how moral panics work today, and we, would, we started off by talking about moral panics. Well. Moral panics um, used to happen very much from above, as it were. They would come via big media outlets, via the state, you know, uh, and that can still happen. Um, it would come via police and other government, government authorities. But now it can be triggered by aggregated bursts of excitement on the social industry. You know, you can um, trigger a panic or uh, a surge of excitement or something over a subject or over a person um, very quickly. And sometimes if you're uh, targeting someone, um, you can get the police involved or you can get SWAT team to turn up at their house, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that a moral panic now isn't something that has to be orchestrated uh, by powerful figures, the powerful can take uh, hold of it and they can leverage it for their advantage, but it can now come from below, as it were, from surges of excitement on these platforms. Um, and I discuss in the book numerous examples of where individuals have been targeted for no particularly good reason and driven to self-harm, suicide, you know, purely because of the way in which online surges of excitement um, and uh, hit and so on work. So th th this is just to give you some um, sense of how uh, a rewritten society could start to look very different. <laughs> Jessica. Oh, hey, dude. What's happening across the street? A parking lot party? That doesn't look like a bank function. No, it's not the bank. It's Kyle. Kyle is throwing a parking lot party? Where is he? Oh, he's right over there. I can't the... believe this. He knows I'm trying to establish a legitimate Hey, venue. goofballs. Do you want to experience technologically advanced sweetness? Excuse me? By using quantum optics, I have created a new strain of sugar called the Pearl. Here, try a free sample. Uh, thanks. No, this is delicious. Hold on. Why don't you go back inside? What the heck are you doing here, Kyle? I'm so glad you asked because you know what? You've had your parties. You've had your lumpin' nose beef thingy. You've had your Labor Day party. And, and you've had that weird space buster thing down the block. But guess what? Now I got my party, and it's called Bridgeport Nose Candy. And we got China and her pushcart full of artisanal candies sitting right there selling candy. And all the funds are that we raise are going to go to... 
Yeah, here's, here's a flyer. Bridgeport knows candy. Hmm. Interest fees 20 You knew about this? Oh, of course. Why didn't you tell me? Because you would have said no. What? Observe, this is what loyalty and friendships looks like. Hold on a second, Ed. Kyle, how did you pull in all these people at 20 bucks a pop? Yeah, I don't get it. It's just homemade chocolates. There's there's like 100 people here. Why don't you try this? Oh, Uh, no, no, no. no. Your friend, though, if he wants to join the party, he will have to purchase something. Show me your permit, dude. Ed, pay the lady. You gotta try this. Nah, forget him. I only serve customers who can hang. These are seriously the best. What What do you call them? These are cocoa coconut bumps. Outstanding. Best thing I've ever eaten. Jamie, are you all right? He's Mm. fine. Can you feel your soul? Yeah, Jamie. I'm getting taller. These are like eating little pieces of heaven. Never even thought about how cool my perception of the world has been enhanced by these little candies. What is wrong with these people? They're enjoying handmade artisanal candy. I'm actually feeling a little... Wait. Bridgeport knows candy. Yes. Bridgeport knows candy. Candy. That's right. Nose candy. Mm. Yeah, so. What'd you put in these cookies, China? What are you talking about? What was that? Uh, hey, China, what are you doing? hey, get your hand get off my cart. A police scanner. Uh, time to blow. What? Let's roll out. Wow. Jessica, call me. Hey, I don't, China, don't please. Please. Oh my trust God. me. I love you. Yeah, come back. Ed, you ruined it. Ed, you stupid. Thanks a lot, Ed. She had all your money. Yeah. We were raising money for Lumpin Radio, Ed. Lumpin WTF Radio. Oh, I feel real weird. Is the CoPro melting? Hey, that's only chocolate inside that candy, right? Oh, mostly. Say what? Whoa, the air is viscous. Go sleep it off, Ed. Guys? Whoa, the air is viscous. These are like eating little pieces of heaven. These are like eating little pieces. These are like eating little pieces of heaven. 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 I need your candy. 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 This week on the Trump Diaries, more companies push back on Trump's attempts to worsen climate change, Trump attacks Fox News, an analysis of Trump's tweets show he's becoming more belligerent and less coherent, Trump congratulates Poland on being invaded by the Nazis, and Trump claims that he's winning over and over and over again. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 952, August 29th. 
Trump is planning to roll back regulation of methane emissions, a major contributor to climate change by eliminating the requirement that oil and gas companies install technology to monitor and limit leaks. In an unusual pushback, many of the world's major oil companies opposed the rollback and urged Trump to leave the current standards in place. The rollback is part of Trump's scorched earth attempt to eliminate any regulations put in place by President Barack Obama. The Justice Department Inspector General criticized former FBI Director James Comey's handling of memos detailing his interactions with Trump, accusing him of setting a dangerous example for officials with access to government secrets. Comey was unapologetic, noting the report found he had broken no laws nor leaked information. Comey has said he helped make the information public in part to bring about the appointment of a special counsel to investigate Trump's interactions with Russia. Comey will not face prosecution. Trump suddenly eliminated a program this month that allowed immigrants to avoid deportation while they or their relatives were undergoing life-saving medical treatment. Called Deferred Action, the program had provided a form of humanitarian relief. The moves have made it all but impossible for people who were previously considered safe from deportation to defend themselves in court. Former Secretary of Defense James Mattis said he had no choice but to leave the Trump administration following Trump's plan to withdraw the U.S. military from Syria. Mattis has indirectly criticized Trump in recent weeks, but he has refused to directly address Trump's character and fitness for office, citing a duty of silence to the administration. As Hurricane Dorian bore down on Puerto Rico, Trump attacked the island, calling it, quote, one of the most corrupt places on earth, and labeling San Juan Mayor Carmen Yulín Cruz incompetent. Trump then proclaimed himself, quote, the best thing that's ever happened to Puerto Rico. And Trump complained that Fox News isn't working for us anymore because the network is not sufficiently loyal to him. Trump urged his followers to start looking for a new news outlet as an alternative to Fox. Several Fox News personalities pushed back saying, quote, Fox News isn't supposed to work for you and we don't work for you. A953, August 30th. Trump formally established the U.S. Military Space Command. The new branch of the armed forces will be responsible for protecting American interests in what Trump called, quote, the next war-fighting domain. Space Command's location is yet to be determined, but the Pentagon is currently considering six locations at bases in Colorado, Alabama, and California. The command is precursor to Trump's proposed Space Force, a sixth branch of the military that is currently waiting to be approved by Congress. The Federal Election Commission no longer has enough commissioners to legally meet after its vice chairman resigned earlier this week. Matthew Peterson resigned, meaning the FEC will be down to three members. That is one short of a quorum. The agency is supposed to serve as the watchdog over how money is raised and spent in American elections. Trump's personal assistant was fired after telling reporters at a dinner that she had a better relationship with Trump than Ivanka or Tiffany Trump. Madeleine Westerhout also told reporters that Trump did not like being in pictures with Tiffany because he thought she was fat. The acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, reportedly pushed Trump, who was ambivalent about the comments, to fire Westerhout. Day 954, August 31st. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has floated the idea of offering bonds with maturities of 50 to 100 years. Mnuchin said the idea was under very serious consideration earlier this month when the yield curve briefly inverted. The ultra-long bonds would allow the United States to refinance debt at historically low levels of interest. Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner discussed the possibility of replacing Mike Pence with Nikki Haley on the 2020 Republican ticket. Haley, meanwhile, tweeted out a denial that she wanted to join Trump on that ticket. Trump is said to be looking to block more than $250 million in foreign aid to the Ukraine. The U.S. has provided Ukraine with more than $1 billion in security assistance to bolster the country's military, which faces an ongoing conflict with separatists backed by Moscow. Russia seized Crimea from Ukraine, leading to its ouster from the G7. 
And Trump spent the final day of the month attacking the disgusting and foul-mouthed Omarosa Mangold. His former advisor wrote a tell-all book about her short time in the administration. Crooked cop James Comey, the former FBI director he fired. Former CIA director John Brennan, who's even dumber. He then claimed credit for low Labor Day gas prices, even though they were actually lower on the Labor Day before he became president. And he congratulated his friend Sean Hannity for the ratings on his Fox News shoe. An analysis of Trump's tweets showed that he's more prone to misspeaking and stumbling, as well as more overtly confrontational, more of the time, more immersed in the daily cycle of presidential punditry, and more casually incendiary with his words and sentiments. Trump issued 287 Trump tweets and retweets in August of 2017, compared to 680 in August of 2019. Day 955, September 1st. Trump canceled his planned trip to Poland after projections showed Hurricane Dorian might strike Florida near Mar-a-Lago. Trump had been set to travel to Poland to participate in a World War II commemoration ceremony. Instead, Trump read a statement that said, quote, I just want to congratulate Poland. It's a great country with great people. We have many Polish people in our country. It could be 8 million. We love our Polish friends, and I will be there soon. The statement was bizarre as the ceremony commemorates the Nazi invasion of Poland, which led to the declaration of war against the Axis by the Allies. Poland lost one-fifth of its population in the war. In contrast at the ceremony, the visiting president of Germany begged for Polish forgiveness. A spokesperson for Trump's re-election campaign disputed the fact that Trump frequently lies. Kayla McGinney said, no, I don't think the president has lied. Then she accused some news networks of lying to the American people. Kenny also dismissed Russia's interference in the 2016 election. Trump, in fact, made 48 false claims last week alone. He has averaged 7.7 false claims per day since July 8th, according to a count kept by The Washington Post. Day 956, September 2nd. Newly appointed Smithsonian Secretary Lonnie Bunch described a private tour he gave Trump of the National Museum of African American History. Bunch recalled that Trump's reaction to the Dutch role in the global slave trade was, quote, you know they love me in the Netherlands. Trump's political allies are trying to raise at least $2 million to investigate reporters and editors of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other outlets. This group will target reporters and editors while other GOP 2020 entities go after the social media platforms alleging bias. The group claims it will slip damaging information about reporters and editors to friendly media outlets such as Breitbart. Trump tweeted a classified photo of Iran's Semnan launch site 1, a location where U.S. intelligence believe a rocket failure took place. Trump wrote, The United States of America was not involved in the catastrophic accident during final launch preparations for the Safir SLV launch at Semnan launch site 1 in Iran. I wish Iran best wishes and good luck in determining what happened at site 1. The tweet, which Trump defended as having an absolute right to do, showed the location of an extremely secretive reconnaissance satellite, which cost around $2 billion, known as USA-224. It also revealed the level of resolution US-224 is capable of, which was a closely guarded secret. Experts suggested Trump's actions will have enormous global security implications, with one nuclear expert calling it so careless and reckless. Day 957, September 3rd. U.S. manufacturing contracted for the first time since 2016. The Institute for Supply Management's Purchasing Managers Index fell to 49.1 in August. Figures below 50 indicate the manufacturing economy is generally shrinking. The contraction is largely due to the spillover from Trump's trade war with China, which shows no signs of abating. Trump suggested that Vice President Mike Pence stay at his Irish golf club and hotel during a tax-funded trip, despite the fact that Pence's meetings were 186 miles away. Pence is now staying at Trump's golf club in Dunbeg. He will fly back and forth from Dunbeg to Dublin for his meetings. That's more than an hour each way. Both Pence and an aide defended the arrangement, claiming the Trump International Golf Links and Hotel was the one facility in Ireland that could accommodate the delegation traveling with Pence. Dunbeg has been a huge money loser for Trump. 
The House moved to investigate Trump's involvement in the 2016 hush money payments to Karen McDougal and Stormy McDaniels. The committee says there's already enough evidence to name Trump as a co-conspirator. Michael Cohen previously pled guilty to two campaign finance crimes related to those hush money payments. The inquiry is part of the House's consideration of whether or not to draft articles of impeachment against Trump. Trump diverted $3.6 billion from 127 military construction projects to build 175 miles of Trump's border wall. Trump declared a national emergency in February to draw funding from federal accounts to build that wall. Betsy DeVos gutted a federal student loan forgiveness program for borrowers who claim they were misled or deceived by their colleges, including those that went out of business for fraud. The new rules make it vastly more difficult for borrowers to cancel their debt on the grounds that their college defrauded them. And Trump claimed that he's, quote, not sure he's even ever heard of a Category 5 hurricane. Four such storms, including Hurricane Dorian, have hit the United States since he took office. Also, Trump claimed Dorian was poised to hit Alabama, leading the National Weather Service to immediate reply and say he was wrong. Trump responded, always good to be prepared. Day 958, September 4th. Trump announced new rules to roll back requirements for energy-saving light bulbs, a move that could contribute to greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change. The light bulb standard has been in effect since 2007. Congress passed legislation to phase out inefficient incandescent and halogen bulbs during the administration of George W. Bush. Trade groups immediately came against the new rule, noting that the manufacturing and sales switches had already occurred and that LEDs are being sold in high volume in all 50 states. However, the move appears to have been stoked by Fox News, which bizarrely made LED lights a partisan issue during the Obama years. Mitch McConnell said he is open to bringing gun legislation to the floor of the Senate, but only if Trump supports it. McConnell said Trump, quote, is in favor of a number of things that we have discussed openly and publicly, and I know that when we pass it, it'll become law. Trump, in fact, has veered back and forth on gun control, but new pressure is on Republicans after another mass shooting in Texas. The White House released a nearly two-minute video called The Summer of Winning that documented a series of alleged wins Trump and his administration have piled up over the summer. The video was in response to a damaging story in The Washington Post that detailed age frustration with Trump over what they saw as a lost summer. Trump tweeted, quote, the Amazon Washington Post did a story that I brought racist attacks against the squad. No, they brought racist attacks against our nation. All I do is call them out for the horrible things they have said. The Democrats have become the party of the squad. The video, which in fact does not detail concrete policy achievements, ends with Trump just saying winning over and over again. Kind of like Charlie Sheen. The FBI has reportedly foiled some 40 attacks by lone gunmen in recent weeks. Several involve the targeting of Walmarts, which have seen two mass shootings earlier this year. Nearly all the plots, which stretch from Illinois to California, involved single white gunmen who were described by the FBI as white nationalists or hard-right radicals. The suspects in these cases targeted LGBTQ people, Jews, black Americans, Latinos, and Muslims. All were armed, some with extensive weaponry. Walmart also said it would stop selling ammunition for assault-style rifles and handguns after two deadly shootings in their stores last month. A federal judge blocked the White House from revoking a Playboy reporter's press pass. U.S. District Court Judge Judge Randolph Contreras said the White House must restore Brian Karam's hard pass because reporters weren't given a clear set of rules governing press conduct. Karam was involved in a heated shouting match with former White House aide Sebastian Gorka and invited the controversial pundit to step outside and settle it. 
In a shock ahead of a critical vote in England's parliament on Brexit, Prime Minister Boris Johnson lost his majority and a critical vote that saw 22 members of his party defect. In parliament, Johnson was heckled and catcalled from almost the moment he stood to speak with members of both parties rubbishing his plan to leave the European Union. Parliament then removed Brexit from Johnson's hands in a procedural vote, in turn likely forcing a snap election next month. Johnson has been heavily backed by Trump. Johnson's Trump-like tactics have now been seen to have backfired. And Ivanka Trump's stylist wants people to know Ivanka has a new haircut, which makes her look more decisive and serious, think Anna Wintour. However, Ivanka's colorist went off the reservation and told the Post page six that, quote, she looks like an anchor from Fox News, and that's probably the next job she'll get anyway. Trump has played golf at one of his own properties 226 times since becoming president. Trump's approval ratings continue to plummet, hitting 35% this week in one poll. These are the Trump Diaries. I-94 chatted with author Colin Asher about his new biography of Nelson Elgren. Why did Elgren suddenly crash out of public view after the smash success of The Man with the Golden Arm? Asher thinks he has found out why, and he points to a little-known FBI investigation of the author. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. I kind of want to return to one of the first questions we asked you real quickly before we play this reading, because there is a central thesis in your book about why you mm-hmm. think Algren's career went off the rails, and the reading directly speaks to it. Um, but I would wonder if you could just speak to a little bit about why you think Algren, in terms of literature fans in America, he, he had such a pivotal presence, and he is kind of like Sherwood Anderson, faded out when he was such an influential person. Why do you think that is um, for modern-day literature fans? I mean, as I said in the beginning, I think that, uh, you know, his, his style of writing uh, is generally passing out of fashion. It, it seems like you're alluding more to the FBI stuff. Correct. What yes. you want me to comment? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So part of my thesis in the book, as, as you bring up, is that I think that the FBI <clears throat> played a great role um, in the sidelining of Auburn's career. Um, and that, you know, I will try not to go on too long, but that came about in a number of ways, and I think that it had a great effect on his legacy. So, you know, The Man with the Golden Arm comes out, in 1949, um, just as the Red Scare is ramping up. Um, and, you know, I sometimes think probably the last moment the book could have come out, because Auburn's connections to the political left were well-known and had been well-known. By 1949, uh, the FBI had been keeping track of Auburn on and off since, for nine years, since 1940. Right. Um, and then immediately after the book comes out, he starts having a hard time... Um, he starts having a hard time publishing his work, which is remarkable. Right? He wins the first National Book Award for this book. It's a bestseller. It's lauded by most everybody important. Um, but the next book he writes, um, Chicago City on the Make, he wrote for a magazine. Uh, all the political content was cut, and his publisher only took it on uh, after the book, or after the text was finished. It was actually the first book he ever wrote without an advance. Um, after that, he gets commissioned to write a book-length work about the politics of, of literature, uh, something that eventually was published long after his death as nonconformity. And his publisher pays for this, um, pays for this book, uh, actually sends an editor out to Auburn's home in Gary to work on refining the book, uh, and then Auburn hands it in 
and hears nothing for months. Well, what's happening in that period, the intervening period there, is that uh, Auburn has been um, denied a passport by the State Department um, for the explicit reason that, um, that he had past ties to the Communist Party. Um, also, in the years between the publication of The Man with the Golden Arm and the suppression of nonconformity, Auburn had publicly supported the Hollywood Ten, um, held fundraisers, raising money for uh, their legal defense. Um, he had become, I believe his title was vice chair of the Committee to Defend uh, Julius Neville Rosenberg, which, you know, at the time, this is sort of social poison to be willing to defend the Rosenbergs. Uh, and gave a number of speeches about throughout Chicago supporting Rosenberg. So uh, he is, actually, there's a nice quote, I don't think I made it, way into my book, but somebody from the Hollywood Ten said, at the time, everybody was running away from us, and Alwyn was running towards us. Right. Um, he's also uh, making speeches, denouncing the Red Scare, insulting McCarthy, um, and warning writers that they need to be part of opposing the Red Scare, and they need to be challenging the government, and they need to be challenging HUAC. Um, so all this is in the background, and he gets this book suppressed in 53. Um, afterward, he tries to um, tries to get a contract to write a new novel, something that he had written a good amount of, and Doubleday uh, will not give him an advance for the new novel, which, again, is remarkable. Auburn is easily one of the five most famous writers in the country at the time. Right. They refuse to give him an advance. Um, instead, they pay him to rewrite his first novel, uh, Somebody in Boots. So he starts doing that, takes two years, give or take, uh, and ends up, <laughs> despite the fact that they hadn't paid him to, ends up writing a new book, which becomes Walk on the Wild Side. Mm-hmm. Um, he hands that book in, hoping that uh, Doubleday will pay him significantly for it. That's his publisher at the time. Uh, and instead, uh, they reject the book. Now, one thing that I make a point of is that what happens between him um, finishing the book and getting the rejection is that he was subpoenaed by the House and American Activities Committee, um, which, to the best of my knowledge, has not been widely reported before. Um, he was finishing, uh, he had finished the manuscript, was getting ready to send it to New York, and he gets this HUAC subpoena. He has no money at the time, and he ends up reaching out to Doubleday. This is by his own account. Uh, he reaches out to Doubleday and asks their attorneys to try to squash the subpoena, which Apparently, they were successful in doing, but as Doubleday is considering whether or not to publish A Walk on the Wild Side, they're also having their attorney squash a House and American Activities Committee right. subpoena for Algren, and then they reject the book. Now, their argument for rejecting the book is that uh, it would run afoul of censorship laws, and you know I think that that is sort of a specious argument because not long after Doubleday rejects it, I mean, literally within a couple of months, I believe, another publisher picks it up, asks Auburn to make some minor changes, which he happily makes, and then the book is released and becomes a, a bestseller. Well, you know, the question of why does Doubleday reject it and why does a second publisher pick it up two months later, uh, you know, one answer to that is Doubleday knew about the House and American Activities Committee subpoena, and the second publisher did not. Right. Um, so, yes, I, yeah, I put a lot of stock in the influence that the government had on sidelining Auburn's career. Awful played a rip-roaring John Daly session this week in Studio A. 
Off their forthcoming EP, this is Bleeding Heart, engineered and mastered by Ari Shellist. sounding a little worse for wear um yes i i just come from a very important meeting that uh was rather rather upsetting um having to do with uh some extended family hmm they seem to be just fine well which is which is very upsetting to me well that is an understand i believe that is a um a, a mood as the kids say or same same, I believe, is what the kids say as well. I to think that. I think the kids, I think the the kids at this point would make a would make a Minecraft reference. <clears throat> well, I myself am feeling uh, not quite down, but also uh, a little a little peculiar. Fortnite um, dance me about it, DF. I I would I would love to, um, in, but but I I simply I don't have the dexterity for it. Regardless, no, no. So I've. I, I routinely go through my computer 
looking through the files, trying to clear up space, you mm-hmm. know, um, as defrag, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and recently I was going through my downloads folder and I saw something very peculiar, um, which is something that I didn't remember downloading. And to be fair, was it uh, virus.jpg? No, it, 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 I, I, I'm even when, even in the depths of blackout drunkenness that I often find myself, find myself in, I have the ability to know when something is a virus, something looks sketchy. Oh, you've never tried the virus.jpg challenge? I, I can't say I have. I'm not that young. Um, I, I, I can't, was too old for these so-called for the challenges. challenges. For, the, <laughs> for the trials. Um, <laughs> to win the cup. <laughs> but um, no, I found something really strange, uh, which is it was a, it's a 344 megabyte dot zip file titled abyss boat in all capital letters mm-hmm. um and it's just it's been just been sitting there because i don't um i should just delete it and move on with my life but at the same time yeah. what what does it mean a mysterious zip a, a mysterious zip in anybody's downloads is 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 you know i believe it's it's the theme of some edgar Allan poe novel well i mean how it no, drives you to insanity it, it does it does actually because it's one it's 344 megabytes that's that's huge for a zip file yeah. what what is it what is it and then i open it up to try and get a better look like you know because you can open it up without actually yeah. extracting it and it's a dot exe so i'm what is the dot exe called abyss boat all capital letters There's no readme.txt nope nope mm. um and so the strange so it it's just there it's just there and i'm sure. just i uh, i'm i want to click it and i want to open it and i want to know but i know the rational part of me should be th- should throw it away get rid of it mm. um and i'm just stuck this is this is right now the most um distressing thing in my life no. uh, far far outstripping work far outstripping um uh you know social cues sure. far it's everything this is driving me this is giving me a lot of issues right now so df as somebody that's graduated with one semester of electrical engineering from Columbia University uh and i mean obviously that for those of you that don't know that makes me a, an expert on this such field um, I would recommend you go into uh, your program files. Yeah. And there's one file I want you to delete. It's very important. Mm-hmm. I need you. This is going to clear up everything. Yeah. Delete windows.xp. Are we cool yet? 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 Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Thank you.